The book of Leviticus. Hmm. So named because the Septuagint named it that way. You remember what the Septuagint is? It was that Greek translation of the scriptures, of the Old Testament scriptures. The Septuagint, meaning the 70, written by 70 rabbis or scholars who translated the Hebrew into the Greek at a time where Greek was being spoken more and more by the Hebrew people to keep the word before them. And so they named this book of the Bible, the third book, Leviticus, pertaining to the Levites, but that wasn't the original name. You may know that many of the books of the Bible are named based on the first word or first few words of that book. And the same is true in the book of Leviticus, as we learned back when we started this study. The real name of this book in the Hebrew is Va'ikra, Va'ikra, which means the called, which is an apt title for Leviticus because this book is a book to the called. We've been studying it, walking through it. I was hoping to get done by the end of the year. We're just just past that, but that's cool. We're going to finish tonight. But this book is the call. It's the book to the call. But, but the question is, called to what? What is this book calling people to? And the answer is very clear. If you've read through this and studied it, there is a single word that defines this book and defines it perfectly, and that word is holiness. This is the book that calls the people of God to holiness. To holiness. The word holiness used 91 times in this book of Leviticus. The phrase eight times repeated throughout the Bible is Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Why are we supposed to be holy? Because He is holy. Now I want you to think about that just for a moment before we get rolling into chapter 25. Be holy. Be holy. The book is about holiness. And as we study it, if it's taken in the wrong context, this whole idea of holiness sounds more like heaviness. It sounds burdensome. In fact, to the typical human mind, and as we think in religious terminology, holiness sounds like heaviness. It sounds like a burden. It's the keeping of law. It's the getting it right. It's righteousness. It's a standard of living that is often higher than where we're comfortable living. It's that standard that we run into from time to time and realize we're not even close. How can I be holy and yet God calls me to be holy like He's holy? Heaviness. Work. But that's not the context in which this book is written. The call to holiness. God calls His people to holiness again because He is holy. And what God would have us to do is to rest in His holiness, not attempt to achieve our holiness on our own. In fact, the more we rest in His holiness, the holier we become because He is crafting in our lives the very holiness we desire. We have a hard time buying that. We have a hard time resting in holiness, and so did Israel. We talked about this on Sunday. They had a hard time accepting God's call to rest to meditation, to times of peace before Him. But He says, be holy, because I am holy. He says, be like Me. And I think there's a key right there into what holiness is really about. Be holy because I'm holy. Be the way I am. Well, what is God like? What's He like? John tells us that God is love. God is love. There's holiness for you. John also writes in a further place that God is light and in Him is no darkness. He's light. That's holiness. Well, what do you mean light? I mean there's no confusion where God is. Everything is crystal clear. There's no guessing. There's no wondering what's really on His mind. It's all revealed. 
It's all made known. God is a God of light. As we've used this phrase many times as a favorite phrase of Wes's, to walk things out in the light. We're going to walk it out in the light. We're going to be honest, open, up front. We're going to live transparent lives. That's holiness. Love and light. Paul writes that in him we find love. We find joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which, by the way, our women's Bible study is going to be starting up. Setting the fruit of the Spirit. It will be happening on Thursdays. The first one's going to start on Thursday. The second one will start at the end of the month on Mondays. It will be in the program. You can find out more about that. But that whole idea that these, these what, nine fruits. Can you hear me okay? I'm just going to speak right like this when the planes fly over. The nine things that are called the fruit of the Spirit. They're going to be setting those and looking at those. But those are pictures of the personality, the character of the Lord. Holiness. Each one of those. In other words, kindness is holiness. Goodness is holiness. Self-control is holiness. The Bible also tells us that God is merciful. And the Bible tells us that God is equally just. Merciful and just. God is absolutely, perfectly complete. In fact, and it shouldn't surprise you, as we think about God in our minds and we consider the perfect the perfect being, ultimate in everything, absolute greatness and wonder in all things, God fits that bill. He is totally complete. So, if you feel like you're missing something in your life, go to the one who is complete, who is whole. If you're feeling empty, God is whole. In fact, a good description of holiness is wholeness. Holiness is wholeness. It's being the complete person that God has called us, created us to be. It's what He wants to create in us. And that's the undercurrent, again, of the book of Leviticus. Wholeness, holiness, to be like our Father. And John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will be holy. As far from it as you may feel at this point in your life, you will be holy when you see Jesus. Well, as we finish tonight... Leviticus 25 begins with days of refreshment, which God is really into. He's into refreshment and restoration and release and rest. These are the things of God. Not striving, not works, not heavy-duty religion, but grace and rest. Beginning in verse 1, Leviticus 25, The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, Then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year, which... Coincidentally means the farmers had a sabbatical year too. As a matter of fact, everybody did. Every seventh year, take the year off. Have a sabbatical. Take a break. I love that idea. I think we should employ that in our in our culture today. Every seventh year, which I think we're about to come up on, aren't we? We've got one more year and then we've been the seventh year, 2007. Take the year off. In fact, I encourage you just to go ahead and do that. Yeah. So tell your boss, Pastor Rick said that was fine. Verse 6. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food. Yourself and your male and your female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you. So everybody gets blessed by this rest. You happen to be in the land of Israel... During the Sabbath year, you're blessed. 
You get to take the year off with them. Even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. And Peter connects this whole idea of Sabbath rest, connects it to Jesus when he says the following. Acts chapter 3 verse 18. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your world will get heavy, so that your righteousness will be more difficult, so that you can get that religious frown on your face and, no, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. It says, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. What does that achieve for us? Peter says, In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. Every seventh year, rest was required. And not just for the people, but for the beasts and for the land as well. Everyone and everything was given the year off a 360 day Sabbath. Which again is where we get the word sabbatical. Turn over in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31. I want you to see something fascinating. Just discovered this last week. This is what the people did during that year. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And it's key. It's key to resting in the Lord. If you wonder, how do we enter into this rest? God keeps inviting us to His rest, and I'd I'd really like to rest in the Lord. How do I do that? How do I go about it? How do I find that place of refreshing in the Lord? Well, look at what the people did. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 31. Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which He will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town. This doesn't talk about E.T., this is just, you know, the foreigner. So that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. As long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Every seventh year, every sabbatical year... The people would gather for the Feast of Booths, and at that feast, in the sabbatical year, God proclaimed through Moses a huge, massive Bible conference. Now, there are some who think, and and if you read this, it, it may indicate that this started at the Feast of Booths and went all year long. That what the people did during the Sabbath year, during that seventh year of rest was study the Word. Go back to Genesis, straight through to Deuteronomy. They would read through it. The law would be read in the hearing of all the people, which means at least once every seven years. If a child was born right after this happened, once he reached the age of seven, he'd hear this. And again at age 14, he'd hear it again. And again at age 21, three times by the time adulthood by our standard comes about, a person would hear the entire book of the of the Pentateuch, those five books, the Torah, they would hear it read. It would be taken through the law. And I think, man, that would be great. If not only we had every seventh year off, but during that year we would take a year-long vacation culminating in an in-depth Bible retreat. We would just study the Word. And the great thing is, nobody could say, I can't be there, I've got to work. Because we will be off. Show up for the retreat and study the Word. The problem is, as we talked about on Sunday, 
they didn't take the seventh year off. Shocking as it may seem, given this wonderful ordinance by God to have a full year of break every seven years, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. In fact, they violated this for 490 years, ignoring 70 of these sabbatical years completely. And that violation landed them in Babylonian captivity for 70 years while the land rested. If you didn't know that, that's why God sent the people of Judah into Babylon. So the land could have its break. 70 years of rest. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20 says, Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So we ask the question, why didn't Israel take this year off? It doesn't make any sense. You're given a year by God to take off, to rest, to relax. Why didn't they do it? The same reason they didn't enjoy or observe the Jubilee. If you didn't hear this on Sunday, the Jubilee. It's that that ordinance given by God back in Leviticus 25. It says every 50th year... So you've got every seventh year up to 49 years. The 49th year you take off, just as you have all the previous years, all the previous seven-year periods. And then in the 50th year, you get a bonus year. You take that year off as well. In addition to taking that year off, if you're in debt, if you're a slave, you're free. You go home. If you have land that you had to sell because you couldn't afford to hang on to it, say 38, 40, 50 years earlier, that land is restored to the family. Everything goes back to the order that God wants it to be. A wonderful year, and they never took that year off either. Never did. Now, I look at that and I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Every seventh year, a freebie, and every fiftieth year, an extra freebie, and they never, never followed that. Why? Because Israel, just like you and me, had a hard time taking off. They had a hard time letting go of their work and trusting God to prosper them. The Lord said, hey, when you take that sabbatical year off, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make the land produce so much prior to that, that during that year, you'll have more than enough. And when that 50th year of Jubilee comes along, well, I'm going to make sure that the land produced so much in the 48th year, that the 49th year, and the 50th year, and then the 51st year, or the first year of the new cycle, when that starts, you're going to have food for all three of those. So you don't have to worry about it. And the people went, yeah, right. You're telling us if we don't farm the fields, if we don't go out there and work the ground, that we're just going to have food, that we're just going to be taken care of? Absolutely, God said, they didn't buy it. They didn't believe it. And so they never, they never observed the Yobel, the Jubilee. Yobel, it's the Hebrew word for Jubilee. It means a continuous blast. I like that. That's great. You have a year for just a continuous blast, one long party. And they never observed it. Look down at verse 10. We're going to skip through a little bit of Leviticus 25 as we go because we studied it uh, earlier on Sunday. But God said, You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release throughout the land to all its inhabitants. That's a liberty. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. We talked about this Sunday. It's stamped on the Liberty Bell in Liberty Hall in Pennsylvania. I love that. It shall be a jubilee for you, a continuous blast, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. Again, all slaves were released, all debt canceled. 
All people were to rest and all ownership was restored to the rightful owners. And in this we find true jubilation. True jubilation. That if I want to live a life of jubilee, even right now, I release people. And as I release people from their indebtedness to me, whether it's financial debt or more likely emotional debt, if someone's wronged me, if someone's hurt me in any way, as I release, as I forgive, Jesus said, their debts, as the Lord has forgiven mine, I experience jubilee. I experience it. I can live the jubilee as I learn to rest in the Lord entering into the Sabbath of God's grace that remains for me. And I can live the Jubilee as long as I restore, or as I restore, that which belongs to the original owner of all things. And, and this was important for me. I really, it meant a lot to me on Sunday as we talked about it. The restoration of all things. Who is the owner of all things, ultimately? God is. So if we restore to the original owner everything that is His, we're free. Our stuff no longer controls us. Our stuff no longer owns us because it's not our stuff. It's His. And we restore it to Him. And we release people and we rest in the Lord. And there is jubilee in that that we can experience here and now, right now, today. But Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remains, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why does it remain? Because the people never celebrated the jubilee. The people never entered into the, the rest of God and so the rest remains. It's still there, waiting for them. The rest. It's still waiting for Israel to enter in. Now think about this. The seventh day of the week is Sabbath rest. The seventh year of the calendar was the sabbatical rest. The 49th year, rest was then followed by rest in the 50th year. All of these sevens, and it all points to the culmination of Earth's history in the seventh millennia, I believe, where the Bible indicates a thousand years of jubilee. Flip over to Isaiah, chapter 62. Isaiah 62. You know, it amazes me how often we go to Isaiah. Have you noticed that? So much of the Bible continues to hinge and come back to this important book, this amazing prophecy. There is so much in Isaiah. Prophecy of Jesus' first coming and prophecy of His second coming and what will follow that. Well, Isaiah 62, verse 1, gives us a little bit of this picture of this jubilee to come, this wonderful millennium, this, this 7,000 year of rest. For Zion's sake, verse 1, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. By the way, i got to pause and say something here. Um, you got to be careful what you email to me or what you say to me on the phone or what you talk to me about in person, especially the night before I'm going to teach because it might come up. And I want to share something with you and I've got to word this in a way because I've got to maintain some confidentiality. This verse um, came at the right time for me this week because I was, I was recently accused of Muslim bashing in my teaching to which, you know, that sent me right back to my old notes to say, what did I have written down? Did I, did, you know, did, did I do that? Um, the reason I mention this to you is I read this verse this week and it came right when I needed it to. I just received an email that, that had accused me of this and it, and it, was, it was a little harsh and, and I, I was, was set back. And let me, let me just say very clearly, for the record, I am not anti-Muslim. 
I believe that every Muslim needs the salvation that comes through Jesus like anybody alive. I am, however, and I'm going to say this very clearly, I am anti-Islam. You are, Rick. Why? Because any religion that would take a person and detour them from the only person who can bring eternal salvation in Jesus Christ is satanic. Anything that would detour us from the only name that can save us I'm sorry, I I can't personally abide that. And so I would rather, I guess, be called anti-Islam because Islam as a religion, as in any, any religion that claims salvation can come by any other name but Jesus, any religion that does that, gang, it is wrong. And that's not my word. That's the word of God. Now, some might say, well, Rick, I, I, I understand that, but you're awfully pro-Israel in your teaching. I'm just trying to teach what the Bible says and read this verse again. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. burning. Why? Why would I cry out for Israel's sake? Because God does. Because God has a concern for Jerusalem. Because He cares about that city. And because His word is the word that says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And you pray for my people. But it goes on, verse 62. Thank you, a little sidelight there. Let me get that off my chest. Verse 2, the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And by the way, this is not talking about you and I. Although I think it can apply This is talking about Israel. Or it will no longer be said to you, verse 4, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land will be called married. Now check this out. I know we're doing Leviticus, but you've got to see this. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man, watch this verse, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons, sons of Israel, will marry you, that is, God. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Listen, the way God has worked things out in history, at least for our understanding, is that He is God. He is called in the Old Testament, husband to the Jewish people. There is a love relationship between God as husband to the adulterous wife, Israel. And he will reclaim her as his wife, as his love. As it says, your land will be called married. But there's a statement here that I believe is about the church, tucked in here. One of these wonderful things concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Look at verse 5, it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride... In other words, as Jesus rejoices over the church, so your God, Israel, will rejoice over you. Isn't that wonderful? Wow. 
On your walls, O Jerusalem, verse 6, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give Him no rest until He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That day is coming. That promise will be fulfilled. Well, that was a sidelight, but back to Leviticus chapter 25. And as you're flipping back there, consider this. What about you and me? Will we be those who strive? Will we, like Israel before us, work and work and work at our faith and work at our religion and work at our Christianity to the point where we are exhausted? Or will we find our rest in the Lord? Will we find restoration and times of refreshment in the grace that is ours through Jesus? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 tells us the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What example of disobedience? That of Israel. And what's the example of disobedience? Working, working, working as opposed to faith in the grace of God. Now down in verse 18. Verses 8 through 17 all talk about the Jubilee. I talked about that on Sunday. There's a CD available if you want to pick that up and and study it. It's a fascinating study, at least for me. But in verse 18 it goes on and tells us, You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. And then the land will yield its produce, so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say... What are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then, verse 21, I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. Why three years? As I said before, enough for the sixth, enough for the seventh, and enough for the eighth year or the first year because during that year you're working. You don't have the produce till the end of that year, right? So he says, I'm going to give you three years worth in the sixth year to cover you the whole time. Amazing. He says, when you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth when its crop comes in. In other words... In other words, they're saying, hang on, Lord, if we take the 49th and the 50th years off, how will our food source hold out? And God says, I got you covered. I got you covered. Now, in verse 21, no, we just read that. Going on, he says, verse 23, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, but you, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. I want you to note a couple of things here. Number one, the Lord says, you are sojourners with me. You are sojourners with me. This is a concept that I enjoyed and thought a lot about in the 16 or so months that our house was being built and we were kind of living in an apartment and living with friends and living down here in this little house and my family was moving around a lot. We felt like sojourners. And every time sojourning came up and we were studying Abraham at the time, I mean, the timing was perfect for my life personally. But this whole idea of sojourning with the Lord is, is a real comforting thought to me. But listen again to what he says. He says, you will be sojourners. You are aliens and sojourners with me. Now think back. What now is a year or more old for us was actually very recent memory to the Israelites who are hearing this, what we're reading in Leviticus. In Exodus chapter 13 verse 20, it tells us that they set out after they had left Egypt from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. We studied this back at the time. See if you can bring this back up if you were there studying with us. As they left Egypt, the people first camped at Succoth or Sukkoth. 
which means tent town which is a great first place for the people of Israel to stop as they left Egypt tent town an indicator of what they would be doing well for 40 years to come they didn't know that at the time they figured, you know, we're going to travel and get to the promised land pretty quick here. The Lord actually had them on a track of one year. It ended up being 40 years. But they started out in Tent Town, and then they came to the second campsite, a place called Etham. Etham was on the edge of the wilderness. Does anyone recall what Etham means? Now, this might be a stretch. It's been a while. Etham, what it means, rhymes with Etham. It's a good way to remember this. Etham means with them. With them. The second campsite of Israel was at the place called Whitham. They're on the edge of the wilderness. They're about to head out. It looks dark. It looks despairing. It looks desolate to them. And as they camp looking out at this, they're at a place called Whitham. And so we see here in Leviticus, God says, Hey, you're aliens and sojourners with me. You're with me. Yes, you're traveling. Yes, you're aliens. Yes, you don't belong here. But guess what? You're with me. You're with me. And so you don't have to worry about where your next campsite is going to be. You don't have to worry about how you're going to travel or how you're going to get there. Because you are with me and I am going with you. Whether you're resting in Sabbath or on the edge of the wilderness where things look bleak and despairing, God says, hey, you're with me. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 this is how Paul said the following I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am I know how to get along with humble means I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of having abundance and suffering need I can do all things through him who strengthens me but the Lord reminds the sojourner not only that he's with them he reminds us of something else the Lord says and he says this in verse 23 the land is mine the land is mine all the arguing between the Palestinians and the Israelis right now about who, who owns the land, who does the land really belong to, it's the Lord's. Ultimately, it's the Lord's. And he says in verse 24, Thus for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. In other words, they had to pay for the land. They had to pay a redemptive price for the land as a reminder to them that it didn't belong to them. The Lord alone, gang, has the right to sing... This land is my land. Because it was his land. As is everything in this world. And yet, even though it belongs to the Lord, he graciously provides it for his people, and he more graciously tells his people he will return them and restore it to them one day. Now, verses 25 through 55, on down through the rest of this chapter. The Lord introduces this idea of Gaal. Gaal in the Hebrew, which is translated the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. It's an important part of scripture to understand and to see because when you get to the book of Ruth, you will see it play out in a powerful and beautiful way. As a matter of fact, interestingly, Sunday night in our Revelation chapter 5 study, you're going to see this play out. It comes back up. But let's read this very quickly. Verse 25 tells us, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, and then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold, uh, well, no, his, his, then his nearest kinsman is to come back and buy back what his relative has sold. That's the Gaal, the kinsman redeemer. He says in verse 26, Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. 
But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of his purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. And again, that's why the Jewish people didn't want to celebrate Jubilee. You buy some land, you wanted to hang on to it. The year 50 comes around, you got to give it back to the guy you bought it from. No way, it's mine now. I've worked this land. I'm not giving it back. Forget the Jubilee. And they lost out on the fantastic blessing of that time. Now again, a kinsman redeemer, and this is an important concept, it's a relative who can show up and buy back lost property at any time. If you were poor, if you had to sell your land, a kinsman could buy back the property for you and return it to you. Again, the book of Ruth romantically illustrates this principle in the person of Boaz, Boaz who would become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, who coincidentally was a Gentile. And that's a whole different conversation for another time. But the book of Ruth, this picture of Boaz, is also a picture and type of Jesus Christ. But you see, gang, we lost the farm because of our sin. We lost the land. We lost the right to this earth. The title deed to this planet that God so graciously gave to Adam and Eve. We lost it because of our sin. And Jesus comes along. And again, we'll see this powerfully in Revelation chapter 5 on Sunday night. Jesus comes along, the kinsman redeemer. He is the one who can buy back that title deed. And the drama is high and it plays out in Revelation chapter 5. Well, next, God brings us to another principle. Verse 29. You can call it the town mouse versus country mouse principle. Here we go. Verse 29. Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling, a dwelling house in a walled city, and his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale, he has his right of redemption lasts a year, only one year. But if it is not bought back for for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations, it does not revert in the Jubilee. So if you have a house in town and you sell it and you can't buy it back within a year, even in Jubilee, you don't get it back. That's weird. goes on, he says, verse 31, However, the houses of the villages which have no surrounding wall shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. What's going on here? If you're in a city and sell a house and you can't buy it back within a year, you lose it. It's gone. That's it. The purchaser keeps it. If you're in the country, however, you get to keep it. Which means live in the country. (laughs) Buy outside of the city. Be rural. You know, it's funny. The rabbis actually believed and taught that God was encouraging people not to live in the city. That he was saying, that's the worst place for you to be. And, you know, it's not too far off. Because city life tends to not just be fast-paced, it tends to be sin-based. Now, I'm not, not saying that us country folks, you know, are more righteous or better, but possibly better off. You may remember back in the 1970s, there was a sociological study done with rats. You hear about this study? Where they took a whole bunch of rats and they placed them in a cage with the same density, same kind of population density as New York City. And they just watched them to see what would happen. After three months, the rats became shy and withdrawn, keeping mostly to themselves, which was uncharacteristic for rats. In six months, they began to turn on each other, and within a year, the rats became cannibalistic. And this is a very famous sociological study. Even with no lack of food, with plenty of food provided, the rats began eating each other. 
And there's a sociological lesson here, but there's also a spiritual lesson here. And I'm going to tell you, as soon as this plane goes by, country living <laughs> here's the spiritual lesson the sociological one is obvious as people clump together things begin to get worse and don't they the more the, the thicker the population one radio commentator in California one time said I have never seen anything good come out of a mob mobs don't produce good things ever but what does this mean beyond sociologically? What about spiritually? Spiritually, the principle is the same. The gospel remains for spreading. The gospel is for spreading, and Christians need to spread out. Gang, when Christians clump, we don't do a lot of good. When we clump, we start to get internalized. We crystallize. We start caring mostly just about what's happening for us. For our certain body or our denomination or our little church, it's all about us. The more we tend to clump. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Go! Go into all the world. Take the gospel with you. Tell everyone. Spread out. John Corson said it this way. He said, Christians are like manure. Let's ponder that for a minute. This is great. Christians are like manure. Spread us out and we produce a harvest. <laughs> Cluster us together and we stink. I love that. So spread out. Now, through the rest of the chapter, quickly, verses 32 through 34, the Levites had a permanent right of redemption for their houses in the city. For the Levites, if they had a city house, they had the redemption right that was permanent. They could always buy back the house. Of course, that's where the temple and the synagogues were interesting to me which is the whole reason you should study the word God wants his ministers to be where the people are so this is the flip side of the coin of spreading out we were just had moved to Anacortes and uh, I remember hearing that the population was, was going up was increasing and I got excited everybody else was going oh no we got to keep Anacortes the way it is no no people here and I'm thinking hey more people more opportunity for the gospel and this is what God I believe is indicating with the Levites they can redeem their land in the city they needed to live in the city why because that's where the temple was that's where the synagogues would be that's where the greatest concentration of people would be and so God said to his to his Levites to his priests be where the people are and take the word to them verses 35 through 38 the Lord goes on and bans the charging of interest among Levites you might just want to jot a few of these things down. He bans the charging of interest among Israelites. No Israelite, no Jew is allowed to charge interest on another Jew if he gives him a loan. Now, it's interesting that in Deuteronomy 23.19, Gentiles can be charged all the interest you want, but not Jew to Jew. Verses 39 through 44, the Lord gives regulations on slavery. What? Slavery? Oh, okay, so this is one of those passages in the Old Testament that indicates that slavery is okay with the Lord? No. No. And listen carefully to this. It's important to understand this. The Lord is giving regulations on slavery. He is not instituting it. He's regulating it. And we've talked about this before, but with Israel still young in their faith. Now, we're, we've been, what, two years now to get this point in the Scripture. We've been spending a lot of time studying these things and understanding them. And a lot of us have a faith to build this on as we study. Israel didn't. As they came out of Egypt, all of this was new. Everything that was happening was brand new. And so as God was teaching His people, He had to deal with what He had, which is always what God does. 
in our personal lives. He starts with where we are. And he tends to begin by kind of regulating our mess, <laughs> helping us to get it cleaned up. And then as we grow in our faith, as we understand God more, as we take further steps toward his kingdom, then he asks more. And the more he asks, by the way, the less difficult the burden becomes. Interesting. So he regulates slavery, verses 39 through 44. And 47 through 55, the Lord basically says that the same laws that he's just been given and given applies to Gentiles who are living in the land. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you live in the land, these laws apply to everyone. Now, chapter 26. See how quickly we can move when we want to. Verse 1. 